that's when I developed the eye to eye framework idea to impact. Um, I mapped out all those steps and um, <clears throat> this is a very long story to get to your original question of what, what does the healthcare system need? And what we discovered is, okay, you, everybody kind of knows the natural steps. It's like you do the R and D and research in the lab and then you move it and <clears throat> commercialize and then you, you know, change policy and then you, um, and then you get it to market and you scale. And we would map out all of those steps. What does it take to get into, um, to thrive in each one of those steps? Who are the players involved? And then we realized, okay, well, what are, what are the biggest challenges? And when I looked at all of the challenges and I mapped them against the steps that, that it takes to go from idea to impact, I realized that the challenges themselves didn't fit in any one of those steps. They all fit in the space between those steps. And they were things like, um, I, I say that the three C's, which is culture and collaboration and, and creativity. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just wanna learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Welcome to episode 18 of Reboot Health. Today, I'm speaking with Crystal Phillips. Crystal is an entrepreneur, former elite athlete, founder of Branch Out Neurological Foundation, and more recently has been the health lead at Thinner Labs Incorporated. Crystal's experience and national network of leaders and competitive spirit allow her to bring solutions to ventures that accelerate their growth. She has a range of experience that provides unique insight into investing in early stage ventures and its potential impact on human health. Crystal, welcome to Reboot Health. Thanks so much. Great to be here. All right. So as we were talking before the show, I'm a little nervous on this one. Most of the time I do a lot of background work. I'm not going to say it's fully scripted, but I understand where, you know, where things are going. You've kindly agreed to do this kind of ad hoc and just have sort of a conversation about um, a couple of topics. And I'll talk about them in a second. So first of all, I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank the audience for sort of putting up with the, this kind of ramble, rambling for the next 45 minutes, but hopefully they get something out of it. One of the topics, Crystal, that I'm really interested in talking about with you is sort of this whole concept of sort of data and health, which is, you know, I don't think it's terribly new. It's getting a lot of traction. I've been around long enough. It was called quantified self and then life logging and then eventually it's kind of leads to precision health. But it's kind of, you know, it's moving forward slowly. But what I'm really interested um, and wanted to speak to you about is your perspective as an athlete, since I think athletes have been doing this for a heck of a long time, which is using metrics to improve their performance. So kind of for your world, it's nothing new, but I think as you move it to kind of the general health world, um, you know, it's potentially exciting, it's potentially challenging, um, but it's certainly sort of considered relatively new now. But before we dive into that topic and kind of unpack that, maybe you can add a little color to sort of that intro and in the bio and help us understand how you moved from being, um, you know, an elite athlete to now sort of venture investing in healthcare, just sort of maybe walk us down that path. Yeah, sounds good. So I'll, I'll try not to take the full 45 minutes on just walking us down that path. Take your time. Um, but yeah, so my, my background is in sport and I have a bit of an unconventional path to get to now in venture capital and and in the middle of bunch of neuroscience. So I, I grew up, I was a tomboy, used to be in figure skating, but I saw speed skating on the Olympics and I thought, oh, I think this is a better fit. Um, I also had just genetic, really big leg muscles, which propelled me in the sport of speed skating. So I took that genetic advantage um, <clears throat> and was able to accelerate in the sport pretty quickly, um, rose up to the junior national team. And then, of course, what you do after high school, if you're if you're serious about speed skating, is you often move to Calgary, which is where the High Performance Training Center is and, uh, and the fastest ice in the world, a beautiful mm -hmm. facility. And so... I moved here um, to Calgary in 2003 to pursue my my big dream of making the Olympics, and that same the summer that same summer no it was it was a summer later um, I started to get weird symptoms and thought maybe I had mono or 
or maybe like neuropathy of some kind. I would have weird fatigue and weird numbness in like my pinky finger. And so I got a bunch of tests done. My skating season was okay, but not great. And then I, I entered into the 2005 summer training and literally over three days went from one of the top junior Canadians in the country to not walking. And I lost feeling from my chest to my wow. toes. I lost bladder control and had double vision. Very, very aggressive onset and unusual for a first relapse of multiple sclerosis. And was diagnosed with MS, told I would probably not speed skate at the level that I was speed skating at ever again. Thankfully, I was still a teenager at the time. And I say thankfully, because up until that point, I really hadn't dealt with much adversity. And so telling me you're not going to speed skate again was just so not a part of my reality that I genuinely didn't believe them. <laughs> so I took that kind of naive attitude forward and um, utilized the strengths that I had uh, on the national team, which was access to top chiros, physios, sports psychologists, coaches, and they helped me not only get back to learning how to walk and eventually bike and I joke, I joke, I looked like a baby giraffe on ice when I started skating again. <laughs> um, but I did race my first competition about four months or five months after that first relapse. And I remember crying myself to sleep that night because my times were now so, so slow compared to before I got right. sick. And I'm this competitive little kid. And, and I wake up the next morning and it's like a line was drawn down the middle of my body. And the entire left side of my body just stopped working. Like it kind of looked like I had Bill's palsy, couldn't taste food on the left side of my mouth, couldn't use my left arm or leg. And that's when it really hit me. Okay, you're not this invincible teenager. You you really do have multiple sclerosis. This is a serious disease. And you have to do absolutely everything in your power to um, get back to health so that you can get back to sport, which was my big, big goal. Oh, wow. Wow. I want to just stop you there. There's so much to unpack. Yeah. So if I get the chronology right, your initial symptoms started in and around 2003, roughly, and then you eventually got formally diagnosed in 2005. Yeah. And then I guess you had a relapse later on when you talked about sort of this, the splitting of the symptoms across the body. Yeah. I'm curious, you must have been as a junior athlete, incredibly monitored in terms of what your performance is by your coaches, by your nutritionists, even by yourself. And you've got these symptoms in 2003, but you're not formally diagnosed till 2005. And now MS is sort of, you know, it's a difficult diagnosis. It's sort of relapsing symptoms. So, you know, sometimes you feel bad, sometimes you feel good. So it's really tough. I get that. Yeah. But I'm wondering, do you think the fact that you were monitored so closely actually, did, did it advance the diagnosis? That Did it, did it sort of alert people to saying, wow, Crystal's falling off for no particular reason, right? Like she's still training. She's still showing up for practice, doing all these things, eating well. And yet the numbers, the metrics are fine. I'm just curious because that's really, that's the crux of, of, of you know, uh, digital health and monitoring patients and sort of early diagnosis, right? Is that we get those early warnings. Did that actually happen for you? Like what's your sense? And I guess there's no way of sort of formally determining, but I'm really curious your perspective. It's such a good question. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist and I like to look at things kind of on the bright side, but I do have a bit of a negative outlook on, on this from uh, at the beginning, because I did have all of this, all of these metrics. I was monitored as an athlete. And you're also looked at, at to, in order to achieve optimal performance in sport, you had to build a team of expertise around you. So you were not just looking at one metric and so you were looking at everything, like you said, diet, uh, sleep patterns, your heart rate variability, like you're always looking at things, your mental health, like it was included. And when I went to the doctor, it was like, you have X amount of lesions, therefore you have this option. And I was like, okay, hmm. um, good to know. How about all of these other things that are going on? And then as soon as I <clears throat> started to realized that I had this disease, accept it. Of course, I was like, okay, well, I'll take the, the daily drug injection as, as recommended by my neurologist. But what else can I do? Because in, like I said, in order to achieve optimal performance in sport, you build this team around you and you do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, why wouldn't I apply that same mentality to build optimal health? 
And so the fact that I had this like linear approach by my doctors to just go on drug A or B that may or may not reduce the number and severity of, of attacks by like 20%, it was not that hopeful. Right. And so I, I, of course, did what every desperate MS patient probably does, which is you go to Dr. Google, um, hopefully not past 11 p.m. by yourself, because that's a dangerous journey. But you get on there and realize that, you know, there are a lot of anecdotal cases out there of people who try lots of different um, therapies and and things that really are personalized to them mm-hmm. and have um, and have shown a lot of benefits. And so I decided that I would become then a guinea pig for all things, both natural and conventional and also unconventional. And I dove into the world of, you know, I became a nutritionist. I started studying herbal medicine and basically tried everything. And you add a layer of desperateness to that as a patient. And, you know, if you find something that says unicorn hair can help you, you buy three bottles and you're willing to try it as long as there's no side effects. So um, I went, you know, I I tried it. I tried everything and and built a a more holistic, personalized uh, program. And as much as my coaches and my my speed skating team and myself was really interested in all of those metrics like you spoke to, when I went back to the neurologist, they would basically just, I would tell them all the things that I do outside of conventional. And then they would just um, check a box, which is like, does other things. <laughs> okay, I, right. You know, I, I live in Calgary. This is where the highest, some of the highest rates in the world of MS is, meaning you have so many data points, so many patients you could mm-hmm. study. And all you're taking are like three, three data points. Um, right. and, and you could... I feel like we could be so so much richer with um, with data and and answers and find those common denominators of you know why am I doing so well with with MS now? Right. So so when you started to sort of go to so so you're being monitored. They're not sort of necessarily looking at all that data to sort of develop the diagnosis. But again, it's a challenging diagnosis. Then you're starting to kind of go into this sort of pers- I'm going to call it personalized therapy, right? Where you're trying different things other than sort of what, what's what's being offered to you as the the only sort of resolution for your for your symptoms and your condition. Who's monitoring that? Like, was your team still, like, when I'm, when I say your team, your coaches, your trainers, were they still monitoring? Like, how did you get feedback on all these sort of different paths that you were going down on your own? Was this sort of just, okay, the unicorn here makes me feel better, so I'm going to keep doing it? Or were you still using some of that sort of data points and knowledge and, and sort of the training that you probably absorbed over your training about, okay, I need to measure something, whatever that is, right? Right. Like my, my walking speed, uh, my calories, my weight, like, like, were you still focused on the metrics to, to determine what the outcome of those um, non, let's just call them unconventional treatments were, or was this purely symptoms and you were just sort of desperate at that point? A bit of both. I, I, you're always tracked as an athlete. So you're doing VO2 max testing, you're doing, you know, you're getting your fat pinched, you're, um, you're measuring your sleep habits, okay. you're, you're, you know, you're always wearing a heart rate monitor. And then of course, you're always timed. And you're always compared against your last times and the, the times of your competitors and the, you know, the top in the world in, in whatever race you're, you're, right. you're focused on. And so, you know, you know how much weight you lift. You have all of those metrics, and I I loved that. And um, admittedly, your coaches and strength trainers—they're the ones who really track that stuff right. and monitor you. But to pair that with all of the other metrics that you're taking, I would say is more on the patient themselves. Like you really do right. have to be the CEO of your own health, or you'll slip between the cracks, and and um, a lot of information will get lost. Gotcha. Okay. So, so were, were, were you tracking anything out of curiosity? Like, like, were you even just tracking your weight or, or were you sort of just not in that mindset where you're like, I'm not an athlete anymore. Now I'm a patient. Now I just got to figure out what the resolution is and just try and go through that without any sort of, let's call it guidance. Yeah. Which- well, if you're talking about when I was still skating, I never saw myself as not an athlete. Okay. Um, and and so I I was still getting tracked with all that stuff with my coaches and and team, gotcha. and then and then I would track just symptoms and how I felt, okay. um, energy, all those things. Like as an athlete, you also learn something like body intuition that 
you take for granted. Mm-hmm. You think everybody has body intuition. And now dealing with this this disease on top of trying to be an elite athlete, uh, you really had to hone in on that skill. And so that was really my my biggest metric. And it, and it changed every day. Like you can say, oh, I weigh this much or my VO2 max was that this week and therefore I need to change my, my diet um, right. for the next month. It's like you, you take every day um, at a time um, and, and you're always tweaking and changing things and it's kind of fun to do that. Right. So, so now that you've seen, let's call it sort of both sides, you've, you've seen you know, the elite athlete, how you guys sort of do things, the, the close follow-up, you've got a whole team of people to sort of help you move those metrics and move yourself forward. And you've been on the other side as a patient where maybe not so much metrics, maybe not so much team anymore, as you said. Um, like you're a solo entrepreneur, you're your own CEO, you got to figure this out on your own. Yeah. What have you learned from the athletic world and what could be applied to more generically the healthcare world as patients? And, 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 and how do you kind of see those two coming together in terms of how we use data to manage health? And, and, and maybe in, in your vision, I'd love to hear sort of what could the world look like potentially moving forward as we kind of move down this pathway? Like, like how do those two collide in, in your perspective in terms of how they manage individual human health? Yeah, I think I could see more practitioners, allied practitioners uh, working together on a team. Like, I mean, in a perfect world, you know, they're having rounds and they're talking about, yeah. um, you know, one single patient, but I think there's a way to do this through data and AI and, um, and, that's going to be the future of medicine so that that collaboration and that communication be, can be more seamless and, and automated. Um, but there needs to be an attitude shift um, and a respect for each discipline. And I, f- I feel to this day as a, as a patient that mm-hmm. there's a lot of competitiveness and ego that gets in the way of, you know, a naturopath collaborating with a neurologist, co- collaborating with a massage therapist. And um, as a patient, I'm thinking, well, I think you're all amazing and I'm benefiting in this section with you as a neurologist. I'm so grateful for, you know, what you can offer for me. And and I'm so grateful for the healthcare system, uh, you know, for getting an MRI almost yearly and not Mm -hmm. having to pay a dime for it. Like that is such a privilege, but um, I'm also just as grateful to, you know, pay whatever I have to pay to go see a, you know, a, a private doctor to get some alternative testing and treatments. And so, yeah, it's, it's quite competitive and a lot of them don't see eye to eye and they think that they're right. And, um, they have all the solutions in their specific field, which I think is super tunnel visioned. Right. So that's a good, I mean, that's an interesting point. That's, that's an ongoing battle, particularly, you know, between some specialties, whether it's, you know, chiropractors and orthopedics. Um, and there's, there's some obviously other ones as well, but that's probably the first one that comes to mind. What do you, it, it's interesting, right? Because as an athlete, you you have all these individuals because they all have different domains of experience, whether you're a chiropractor, you're a massage therapist, whether you're a physiotherapist, like, like all sorts of very sort of um, specific domain expertise kind of come together to make that individual, which in the athletic world, sort of there's a big prize at the end of it. What do you, what do you think, what do you, do you have any sense going through that sort of pathway, what we need to resolve on the health side to sort of close that gap where we're not fighting as much? Like, is, is it, is it simply about data or do you, is it a culture thing? Like, like, I'm just curious what your interactions were, right? Cause you yeah. knew you had a team and then you walked into a neurologist and it was you and a neurologist and, and the whole decision would be made right then and there. There's no con- consultation with a coach or with a physiotherapist or, you know, I'm not saying, okay, you, you know, you're not going to the, the trainer and saying, okay, how fast did she run? What was going on? Or the nutritionist saying, is Crystal's weight changing? Is that, you know, there's no, it's just the neurologist makes that solo decision. And a lot of healthcare is like that. So I'm just curious what, what you think might, might help close that gap. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the next, the next sort of storyline beyond uh, sport and through that experience, through the sport experience, I created a framework called Eye to Eye, um, standing for Idea to Impact. And as I did facilitated sessions to understand what is that pathway to go from ideation all the way to making real human impact at scale, and then looking at what are the steps to get there. So um, let me back up a second and say, you know, 
I got back to an elite level in sport once I started to navigate both conventional and unconventional paths and find a precision kind of holistic treatment that worked for me. And by 2009, uh, so five-ish years after my diagnosis, Mm -hmm. I qualified for the trials for the 2010 Olympics and was back at that elite level. And I went into the pre-Olympic season of training and lost vision in my left eye overnight, um, which put me back into relapse, got more tests Mm -hmm. done. I was told that my disease is progressing. I have many more active lesions and that I should be prepared that, you know, for the reality of being a wheelchair in, in, you know, in the coming years. And, and then they recommended a much more aggressive treatment plan and the treatment, to be honest, sounded worse than the disease itself. And so I figured, you know, I had nothing to lose here. So, and I'll never know whether it was the drugs, the daily drug injection for five years that helped me get back to an elite level, or if it was all of this other stuff. And so I looked at the side effects of the ne- the dr- drugs they're recommending, and it's like brutal and, and pretty daunting. And then I look at the side effects of all of this other stuff, and it was like more energy, better sleep, a six pack, like the, the, the choice was kind of obvious to me. So <clears throat> I made the decision to go off all of my drugs completely, treat my disease, quote unquote, naturally. And eight months later, I came just shy of the Olympic team. Thankfully, I still got to experience the 2010 Olympics because the government basically had been following my story and made up a grant and um, <clears throat> sent me and my mom to to go watch and I got to cheer on my teammates. So great bookend to my my Olympic experience and dreams and and a, a great career in speed skating. And at the end of my my skating career and after navigating the the healthcare systems. A new dream, bigger than the Olympics themselves, had been brewing, which is to fill the gaps in the healthcare system that I noticed. Um, a lot of them being, we need higher quality research and scientific validity and res- and research money for some of the less conventional approaches and the high tech solutions for neurological disorders, not just MS. And and that is very purposeful because what we understand about the brain is so minor compared to what we need to understand. And Mm -hmm. so the more we learn about concussion or Parkinson's or depression, the more we're going to learn about MS and Alzheimer's and, and ALS, like we need to look at this as a whole system. So I started a a charity called the branch out neurological foundation to do just that raise money, fund research into non-pharmaceutical and innovative tech solutions uh, for neurological disorders and this is not a <clears throat> anti-pharma play. It's not anything um, that is, you know, me being anti-anything. It's more a matter of, hey, there's a gap here and we need to mm-hmm. work with um, what um, is working well in the system and complement it and, and make sure there's enough funding for it. So now I'm faced with this other problem, which is um, my background skating in circles and not neuroscience. And so I learned that very valuable lesson of outsourcing your your um, life and and playing your strengths. And mine was, you know, getting people together, getting them motivated, um, throwing great parties, um, fundraising, um, and finding what I call unlike minds, which is we all have this like vision. We all want a future where neurological disorders can be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we're all going to have different expertise um, areas and and ways that we can contribute to that mission and that vision. So I, I'm basically the facilitator and the coordinator of all of those unlike minds. And that's how I saw my role as I built a charity. And, and it's how I see my role in venture capital too today. Nice. So going back to the charity through, you know, a decade of experience of raising money, funding research, finding um, top quality researchers from the undergraduate level, all the way to the principal investigator level um, in universities across Canada, realized some other gaps, which is um, why are we so good in Canada at um, the R&D and early stage research, but um, so poor at getting it outside of the labs and into the hands of other unlike minds so that they can help move it towards making real human impact at scale. And so that's when I developed the eye to eye framework idea to impact. Um, I mapped out all those steps. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> this is a very long story to get to your original question of what, 
what does the healthcare system need? And what we discovered is, okay, you, everybody kind of knows the natural steps. It's like you do the R&D and, and research in the lab, and then you move it and <clears throat> commercialize, and then you, you know, change policy, and then you, and then you get it to market and you scale. And we would map out all of those steps. What does it take to get into, um, to thrive in each one of those steps? Who are the players involved? And then we realized, okay, well, what are, what are the biggest challenges? And when I looked at all of the challenges and I mapped them against the steps that, t- that it takes to go from idea to impact, I realized that the challenges themselves didn't fit in any one of those steps. They all fit in the space between those steps. And they mm. were things like, um, I, I say that the three C's, which is culture and collaboration and, and creativity. And it's kind of looked at as almost like these soft skills or right. these, this, this nuance that isn't really trained or focused on in, say, med school. And so then you look at the players that are in the medical system, and most of them are analytic, pragmatic, very smart people that I wouldn't, I would argue their absolute strength is not necessarily culture and communication and collaboration. Um, and, and it's not to say that they can't do that and don't, but I would, I would argue that the majority of people and experts in the medical system, that isn't their, their prime focus. And I think we lose that skill and, and, and it's why we need to see more collaboration with the entrepreneurial um, types and, you know, the people with unconventional back backgrounds like skating in circles who are are looking at the healthcare system and and thinking very differently about how um, improvements can be made and and we're starting to see that blend now but um, mm-hmm. I hope that more unlike minds and that acceptance uh, will help flatten the the hierarchy and and allow for for more um, creativity and, and collaboration. That makes sense. Is is that and that was sort of one of my questions was it, was that essentially the path that led you to thin air lab like like you so you know athlete patient then you know founding a charity and now thin air lab so so all you know I, you can follow the thread but they are all very different domains so what kind of closed that last gap between branch out neurological foundation and thin air labs like was it was it to fill this friction point that that you mentioned and and specifically like why this one because you mentioned there are other ways you could do it as well so why this particular path yeah so i i started the the, i co-founded the the branch of neurological foundation in 2010 and by 2019 i started to get that sort of on that seven-year itch that entrepreneur (laughs) (laughs) and and i also started reading the articles on founderitis and thinking, you know, I'm probably at that point where my creativity is going to run dry. Um, I'm starting to think in circles, like we need to introduce more more perspectives and and just new blood into the organization. And not only that, but over those nine years, realize that I'm working so hard to raise money and fund all of this amazing research. And I'm seeing this research have a lot of commercializable potential and it not going anywhere and it, or struggling to leave the lab. And, and so I've been thinking, I, I was trying to think of what kind of job could I, could I have where I could influence um, moving the needle on all of these great ideas and all this research we've, we've so many people have funded and, and fought so hard to accelerate in this country. And so um, ironically, I, I met with a, a mentor of mine who I'd met through kind of the tech scene in Alberta. His name's James Lockery. And he was starting Thin Air Labs and saw venture capital and consulting differently and really wanted it to be founder focused. He saw the opportunity of great R&D across sectors, health included, and its ability to create big impact and also big returns. And so him and his two co-founders started Thin Air Labs right around that time when I was thinking of, of replacing myself as executive director at the Branch Out Foundation. And so I went for that dangerous coffee with the three of them and talked about my vision for the healthcare sector. And it was so aligned with their thinking. They were so excited about my perspective and also network at that academic level, which was, mm-hmm. you know, in their, in their minds, which I hadn't never heard this word before, which was deal flow. And so 
they basically hired me uh, with a handshake uh, out of trust. And I pretended to think about it for a second and, of course, took the role as as health sector lead, but then also to join the capital teams because we wanted to we want to raise a fund and are raising a fund up to $100 million for our first fund uh, to invest in early stage companies from the pre-seed to seed stage will be our first check. And then we'll have follow-on investments up to Series A. And so um, that's how I'm, I'm now in venture capital. And admittedly, when I first stepped into this world, I, I didn't know what EBITDA meant, but I wasn't intimidated um, by that because in, in, in my past, you know, I, I didn't know anything about neuroscience. And like I said, my background was skating in circles and I right. built a multinational um, neuroscience charity that's well respected in academic institutes across the country. So I'm I'm not afraid to, you know, not know what EBITDA is. I'm, I'm really highly determined to um, learn venture capital and um, and build this this venture capital firm, Thin Air Labs, across the country the way I did with my charity. Awesome. So, so maybe we can unpack that a little bit because I'd love to understand now that you're sort of on the venture side, um, you talked a little bit about sort of, you know, just touching on your vision and I assume it relates to sort of where you've been and, and how you look for things to move in the future, but maybe give us an idea of sort of as the health sector lead at Thin Air Labs, how do you look at this sort of deal flow? Like, like what, like, do you have a... I think you said before you're not specifically focused, at least from a, a foundation perspective, only on MS. So, are you focused at Thin Air Labs on all neurological conditions? Are you focused on all health? Are you focused on digital health? Like, like how does Crystal look at kind of ventures coming through um, on the health side? Like, what, like, do you have a thesis, or, or, or do you just like, it's, like, it's yeah. a great founder? I, they've struggled, so I want to invest. I don't care what they're doing. Like, wh- how do you look at that? Because there's so many different ways, right? And there's not one that's right or wrong. But I'd love to hear kind of how, how your past has sort of colored your future perspective and lens about how you look at these early stage ventures. For sure. So <clears throat> I'm sure anyone who's listening to Reboot Health podcasts understands that health. Not many, health- so it's okay. <laughs> just just the two of us right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, health is such a broad topic, and you can go into yeah. so many different niche areas. And so I've I've categorized the health focus into three areas where I think they'll encompass the future of, of medicine. The, the first one being prevention. I think there's a, a, a movement towards preventative medicine, towards, you know, more people wanting to be the CEO of their own health. Uh, you know, there's biohackers, there's uh, research on longevity, there's, um, there's apps for mental health. It's no longer this kind of hippie type right. therapy. It, it's, it's something that people want to be proactive about. And, um, and I think technology is making it easier and more accessible. So prevention is one of the areas that we're focused on. The other one is precision. So looking at um, personalizing, and that is not possible without big data. And now that we're learning, you know, new workflows, data collection, and organization, we're going to be able to um, increase our ability to have an understanding of what makes uh, you different from me, um, mm-hmm. despite having, say, the same disease, and and building strategies and therapies and treatments accordingly. So that's the, the, the second area. So, so precision, prevention, and then the third one, I like, like it when they all start with the same letter. Um, yeah. I, call it, I call it pathways. And, and it's really looking at not just the innovation of things. So not just you know, getting our eyes wide and, and giddy about this new fancy gadget, but looking at the innovation of ways how is that going to be incorporated into the system? How are people going to accept it? How are they going to use it? Um, who's going to pay for it? Um, we also look at software systems and workflow systems that help navigate the communication across uh, different practitioners. Um, I mean, Cohesic is one of um, the examples. Um, it's a company in our portfolio, and they um, streamline the workflow process for in cardiology. So if you're a patient, you go see a GP, that GP then sends a report to a cardiologist, the cardiologist then sends a report to get the, um, the tests and, and the radiologist. And, and so there's broken, often broken communications in that path to go all the way to the radiologist and then back to the patient. And so this streamlines that there, it adds, adds images to the, to the standardized words and, you know, in, in, for some people, it, it kind of seems like a boring company because it's not a robot or something <laughs> that flies or, you know, something crazy like that. But it's, 
as a patient who understands the disconnectedness of mm-hmm. just something simple like getting a test and a, and a result, it, it's like to me is a game changer. Awesome. So that's that's how I describe the pathways, and so that's how I, I categorize the three areas within the health sector. And then as a thesis, as a whole for Thin Air Labs, I mean, we are very, very founders fo- focused. It's why we we invest in the early stages of pre-seed to seed. The, the founder success is our success. We really understand that and respect it. We invest early and we put a lot of weight behind the founder themselves and their team. Gotcha. You mentioned Cohesic, which, which I would sort of say is more on the sort of for lack of a better word, maybe the infrastructure side of healthcare, sort of the nuts and bolts of how information flows through it. Do you have any thoughts or, or, or even even examples of, let's just say, more consumer-facing deals that you've done? So not necessarily the Fitbits or the Whoops or all that, but 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 that kind of thing where, you know, you're you're like you're excited because. Maybe this reminds you a little bit about your journey and how it can actually, you know, it, it gives patients tools that they didn't have in 2005 when when you were kind of going through this personal experience. Do, like, yeah. do, are there ventures like that that excite you and 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 maybe give us a sense of like what is exciting you? Like how do you see sort of the world changing for with with those kinds of technologies? Yeah. So one of the companies is called Cyantra, and they uh, they do blood tests. And their first product is a blood test for early uh, breast cancer detection. And, you know, I'm a 36-year-old woman, so I think, I don't think I know any 36-year-old woman who doesn't know someone um, who's had breast cancer or been affected by breast cancer. So that is very personal and it's very real in real time. They now offer this test um, to the public and are in market. So me and all my friends can for a fee pay for this blood test and get the assurance that we either do or don't. And if we do have breast cancer, we, we detected it early enough so that we can create mitigation strategies and, and hopefully our therapy and treatment can be less uh, daunting and severe and more hopeful than if it were further down the line. Awesome. Is, is that, is that, is that, is that out of Alberta as well? Just out of curiosity? Yeah, it's out of Calgary. Calgary. Okay. Well, just in Alberta. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't want to, no, you know, exactly. I don't want to get short shrift Edmonton. Like, I mean, like you guys, you guys got to play nice. So, so let, let's, let's talk because uh, you know, what's been fascinating that, that I've sort of seen, and I must admit, I haven't focused on it. So when you focus on something, it becomes more obvious, but over the last, I would say, what I don't know, maybe year, two years, Alberta's really putting out a lot of great innovation in the healthcare domain. And typically, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Alberta, it's typically kind of oil and gas. It's kind of a, a, you know, a, a one horse show, but um, healthcare is really floating to the top. What, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on like why that's happening and, and, and how that's happening? And is that, is that just something that's kind of a blip or is it, is it really sort of a, a focus of that entire community to sort of, for lack of a better word, diversify, or do they see the importance of healthcare? Like it, it's kind of popped up out of nowhere, right? I mean, typically we've had Vancouver, you've always had Montreal and you've had Toronto, the, the epicenter is kind of just chugging away doing stuff, but Calgary seems to really be firing on all cylinders now. I'd love to hear your sort of perspective and, and Edmonton as well, just, just to be clear. Yeah. No, <laughs> well, definitely. Edmonton. Edmonton. I mean, Edmonton's a great example. I mean, they have some of the top AI ML experts yeah, in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's so much opportunity in this province um, and, you know, even Lethbridge in Southern Alberta, I mean, they have the top behavioral neuroscience program in the world. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of innovation. Um, I would argue that it's always been at the, it's kind of stuck at the R&D academic level. And the oil and gas industry might have overshadowed this. But um, now that there's this, you know, the, the buzzword of Alberta is definitely um, economic diversification. Okay. And so we're looking at other areas to not replace, but complement and expand um, our, our economic drivers here. And we look at, okay, well, what are our strengths? And so we have so much IP stuck in the, in the academic labs. Um, we have amazing research facilities, especially in the health sector, but then there's a lot of cross-sector collaboration. So, you know, there's human health, there's veterinarian health. We have a veterinarian um, school in Calgary. Um, we have the AI and ML talent coming out of U of A. Yep. We have one of the largest cancer research centers being built right now. We have the largest germ-free lab 
in the world. Um, we have a strong agricultural scene, food industry, like there's a crossover between that and, and all the life sciences work. So I think people are starting to, to just get creative about, okay, what other industries can we stand up and really accelerate in this, in this province and in the prairies? And they, you know, once they got started with that and then COVID shone a spotlight on the healthcare mm. system, which, which I think further accelerated that, that concept and the idea of, of building up this sector, then we started to see government funding um, a lean towards um, increasing the activity in life sciences. And then you have organizations like Biohub, um, Thin Air Labs, and soft landings where scientists are emerging from the labs and they're like, huh, there's these soft landings and there's these partnerships and it's not as intimidating and it's it's real. Like I could really commercialize this research that I've been working on in the background for 20 years as a world expert in this field. And so um, I think we have the foundations, we have the IP, we have the, the talent and now it's just a matter of, of coordination. And so that, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm pumping my own tires, but that's kind of my, my expertise is like, how do I facilitate the unlike minds so that um, they can move towards this direction of building the, the healthcare sector and other sectors um, um, along with the ener- energy sector at West? Right. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things I'm, I think we've chatted about it before, sort of offline, is is the the focus. I mean, it's always been sort of Canada, and this is historical. I've been around a lot longer than you have. Um, we won't go into how long, but quite a bit longer. Uh, it's always been about regionalism in Canada, right? I mean, I mean, it's always been about sort of BC and Alberta. I know we've talked about this before. Uh, I'd love to hear sort of your perspective because you're now you're obviously deep embedded in the Alberta ecosystem. You're obviously traveling a lot. I'm sure if you're going to BC and you're seeing, you know, you've been here in Ontario seeing things. I'm just curious what your perspective is. Is this sort of Alberta needs to get its house in, and it's not necessarily one versus the other, but Alberta needs to get its house in order before it can start to play nationally. Or is it that, you know what, maybe playing nationally helps to get its house in order a lot faster. I'd love to hear your sort of perspectives about sort of this regional versus national play. Cause I always, I have one perspective, but I'm always, keen to hear other people's views on that and sort of push back and, and understand what am I missing or, or, or what can be additive yeah. to, to, to how I'm thinking about things? It's a good question. I think ultimately we want to win in our own backyard first, prove the concept. Um, because we invest at that early stage, uh, we also have, um, we have expertise that helps support those entrepreneurs and the teams at the at the early stages of the company. So we like to be physically close to them so that we can have the best chance of, of helping. And and then as we expand our team, as we expand, you know, our fundraising capabilities and and you know look at fund two, fund three, we absolutely want to see um, more of a national reach and not be as regionally focused. Gotcha. That makes that makes that makes a lot of sense. I want to I want to switch topics for just a second because I'm always sort of curious about this from my own sort of learnings. Is it tough to be a female athlete relative to a male athlete? I'm changing gears completely. I'm just curious, right? Because because if we look at team sports, well, I'm just I'm just curious, right? And and I'm going to get to this because it I'm going to ask you the same question in terms of venture investing, right? Or or founders, right? It's 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 a problem, and it's unclear to me how big of a problem it is and and more importantly directionally is it getting any better because we can talk about it all day long but if we're not moving in the right trajectory then to me i don't know why we keep talking we should actually do something about it so i'm curious whether you know you're going from a and the reason i started an athlete is are you are you following that set are you going through that same struggle again that you did sort of as a and if it was a struggle i don't know right female athlete then there's not a lot of females in venture capital. There's not a lot of female founders. I mean, it seems to be an upward battle. I'm just sort of curious, are you noticing this or are there some areas, actually, this is a lot easier than before. Maybe this is a lot more difficult. I'd just love to get your perspective on that. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, which is playing your strengths. Um, it, as an athlete, I think depending on your sport, I think women might answer differently. Okay. I was in a sport where 
you know, you were celebrated with having big muscles and, <laughs> and that kind of strength. And so I, I wasn't affected so much in, in, as an athlete. In fact, I, I didn't really see any, any issues being a female versus a male. Like I think you all have your own struggles and challenges in, in your own ways. Right. And, and, you know, the funding is pretty even across, okay. uh, you know, the national team, whether you're a, a, a male or female and that's in speed skating. So I can't speak for, for, um, other, other sports. Right. Fair. It came to founding a charity. Um, I think the thing is, is like anyone who's founded anything, it's like, you have so many challenges and mm-hmm. so many barriers that you're up against that you're like, I don't know up from down when it comes to which one is worse. <laughs> There's just so many flying at you at all, you know, right. all the time that you're just like, focusing on what you need to in order you know it's basically you just have to stay mission driven it's like i know where i'm going and all of those obstacles that are coming it's like you have to expect them and deal with them in the moment but always keep your eyes on the on the prize and and kind of have that long-term vision otherwise it is easy to get super distracted and i would argue the same thing with uh, venture capital if there are you know if there is inequality and you know, things that aren't fair, I I genuinely just put my blinders to them because what I look at is what are my strengths? What are my team strengths? Who are the amazing people I get to work with? What are the incredible opportunities ahead? And how do I get them? The rest, the obstacles, the challenges, to me, that's just noise. It's not a matter of if you're going to get over them and through them. It's a matter of, of just when and how. Got it. Got it. Does And I know there are a couple of venture funds that sort of focus on female founders through immigrant founders, does Thin Air Labs have any sort of perspective on that? Or, or again, you're just, I mean, you're, you're blind to the founding team and you're just looking at sort of the technology, the value proposition, how they're going to get to market, just kind of the, dare I say, sort of the critical pieces of, of getting of a venture up and up and out the door. Yeah. Like we are ruthlessly focused on finding amazing global um, highly impactful um, companies, and it just so happens that almost half of our portfolio is is female led founders, and that's not wow, necessarily by design. We just we just don't have you know a bias or you know we're not favoring women versus men. We're favoring the best founders and the most amazing people with the best ideas and the biggest potential. And and when you do that, it's it, you you have to you probably do have to consciously practice, but you definitely mm-hmm. eliminate a lot of those biases. That's fantastic. That's, that's great to hear. That's amazing. You know, I guess two questions here. What's, what's the future look like for, for Crystal Phillips sort of five years out? I mean, you've obviously been through a different, you know, number of domains and you've got sort of, you know, uh, you got a vision and you're moving forward. So I'd love to hear kind of what that looks like. And, and, and maybe also what's, if you can blend it in there, what are you seeing that's sort of exciting for you as sort of the lead of Thin Air Labs health ventures writ large? Like what's what's coming down the pipeline that you're like getting really jazzed up about that's maybe maybe not quite here yet, but in five years, you can kind of see this being really impactful. Whether that's yeah, a venture, so- whether it's a technology, whether it's a team, doesn't matter. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in five years, we're going to be on track at Thin Air Labs to being the largest venture capital firm in Canada. So that's a good start. It's a good start. Um, (laughs) You know, I I want to be one of the biggest health investors um, in the country. And I also want to lend a leading voice and and an optimistic and positive voice for um, for women, for men, for entrepreneurs, for anyone in the healthcare sector who really want to uh, grow this and, and see a lot of human impact. Another dream of mine is to see a lot of um, cross-sector collaboration between health and human performance, um, because I think whatever you know we're, we're learning about health often applies to um, human performance and sport. And I mean, that's just a selfish goal because I love those two areas so much and they're my background. Nothing and I, wrong with I, that. We see um, a lot of potential between the two complementary. Fantastic. And, 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 and the human performance and health that that's going to come out of thin air labs, or that's, that's kind of a project that Crystal is working on in the background somewhere. I hope it comes out of thin air labs. Yes. Got it. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll we're going to look forward to that. Um, so, so the final question, Chris, I like to sort of ask everyone is, you know, sometimes, sometimes some people think the podcast may, may seem a little bit negative because we're, you know, reboot health, we're trying to reinvent the health system, that things aren't good, but 
and, 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 you know, you told your own personal story at the beginning of the show, which, which first of all, I appreciate. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and, but it does sort of, you know, it shines a light on some of the friction in healthcare, but the reality is, is, is sometimes healthcare is actually works pretty well. Um, and there are some things that it does, it does, you know, it does well that, that, that doesn't need to be changed. So as you look kind of forward to, you know, the future of our healthcare system, and maybe this is Canadian specific, maybe it's not, but as we look to kind of get it better, what do you hope doesn't change in the healthcare system as we kind of move forward? What what kind of worked well for you with your interactions, as an example, um, or you know, if you know something from a, from a family or wherever your your learnings come from, what worked well for you that you hope doesn't change as we move forward? Yeah, it's such a good question, and um, you know, what's first to mind, and I. I feel like you could think of something new that's great about the healthcare system in the moment um, and it would be different every day. But right now I'm thinking actually about the nurses because through all of my experiences of actually navigating the healthcare system, that the compassion, um, the intelligence, um, the work ethic um, that I've experienced with, you know, the frontline workers has always been really inspiring and, um, and positive. And I'm just, in admiration of, of, of them. Well said, well said. And in the last two years, I think we can all double down on that because it's been, uh, it's been pretty chaotic for, for, for all of them at the front line. So yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying fully. So thank you. Um, Crystal, people want to kind of stay in touch with you if they want to reach out to you, whether it's for, you know, branch out neurological foundation, thin air labs, whether it's to get some tips on speed skating, whatever, whatever it is, how, how do they, what's the best way to connect with Crystal Phillips? Yeah, the best way is probably send me an email. I don't know if we can put this on Reboot Health. Yes, absolutely. We can do whatever you like. It's your show. Yeah. And, and you know, I have a couple of, of websites for the both the Branchout Foundation, branchoutfoundation.com, and then, of course, Thin Air Labs, thinairlabs.ca. Perfect. Um, I'll make sure I put that all in the show notes for you and uh, then look forward to to people reaching out to you. And uh, thank you very much, Crystal, for spending your morning on the show and uh, chatting about, again, I really appreciate you sharing your personal experience and look forward to seeing what comes out of uh, in the future for Crystal Phillips and Thinner Labs. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been really excited to be on this show and and it's an honor because it's my favorite podcast. Um, oh, you're just saying that. Now. I think the first one, <laughs> one was listening to Ray Muzika and Dr. Jahangir Apu and uh, was really inspired by it and learned so much. So it's an honor. Oh, great. Thank you. And this was, this was fun and, and unscripted. So I'm, I'm a little less nervous, but let, let's, let, yeah. So thank you very much for putting up for all the guffaws. So thank you. No problem. We'll talk, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.